Welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. This week we welcome veteran journalist and host of CBS Sunday Morning, Jane Pauling, who's a renowned advocate for mental health. She's joined by colleague Mark Hackett, who runs more than a dozen Indiana community health centers named after her. I kind of choked up at the invitation to put my name on that single clinic. And six months later, I was cutting a ribbon for the Jane Pauling Community Health Clinic. Factcheck.org's Lori Robertson checks in, and we end with a bright idea. Now, here are your hosts, Mark Maselli and Margaret Flinter. Jane Pauley has built a trusted legacy with American TV viewers since she first appeared on the Today Show. Her boss once complimented her on an even-keeled personality in an industry known for big egos. In recent years, Jane has opened up and shared details about her health issues, and that openness has created even more connections to all of us. Her link to health includes lending her famous name to the Jane Pauley Community Health Center in Indianapolis. Also joining us today to talk about the important work of the Jane Pauley Community Health Center is its CEO, Mark Hackett. They have been awarded federally qualified health center status. They now have 12 sites in four counties of Indiana. Well, Jane is on. Jane and Mark, welcome to Conversations on Healthcare. You know, Jane, you grew up in Indianapolis. You, you went to Warren Central High School, graduated in 1968, and you probably weren't thinking back then that the community would honor you with the naming of a community health center after you. I wonder if you could tell us uh, about how that naming came about. <laughs> I wasn't anticipating anything that transpired <laughs> as a, a, a getting a job, much less a career, marrying a cartoonist, uh, the diagnosis at the age of 50, and uh, much less uh, the clinics with my name on it. The original clinic is about uh, no more than a mile uh, from where I grew up. Uh, so I'm very much a hometown girl. I'm, uh, you're, you're good to, um, to know my high school, Warren Central. Uh, when I was in, at, at high, in high school at Warren in 1968, when I graduated, we were a powerhouse in uh, uh, no athletic endeavor, but in speech and debate, big time. And so I had gone back in, uh, gosh, how I don't even know exactly what year it was, seven or eight years ago, uh, but to uh, celebrate the first state uh, speech and debate champions in 40 years uh, since my era. And after we posed for that yearbook picture, the uh, uh, superintendent of the school introduced herself uh, with a folder under her arm and she said, uh, uh, and I quote, uh, Jane, uh, we've we've got a proposal for you, and I'm not asking for money. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but then she explained that they were were building a, a health clinic, a community clinic in a school. I knew that there were uh, school-based clinics all over the country, uh, but this was a community clinic that happened to be in a school because uh, she had a school with space, and uh, I knew a little bit about community clinics. I had a, some experience and uh, it brought, I literally, I kind of choked up at the invitation to put my name on uh, that single clinic. And mm -hmm. six months later, I was cutting a ribbon for the, uh, the Jane Pauley Community wow. Health Clinic. And nobody anticipated that there would be a dozen or more uh, in, in the future. Credit for that goes to Mark Hackett and, and, and his team. And uh, so that's how it happened. 
You know, you've you've been a pioneer and a groundbreaker in in many ways in the course of your career, and and one of the ways you've been a pioneer is in speaking openly about bipolar disorder, and this has really made a difference, I think, for our country. Could we ask you uh, to tell your story uh, so that we make sure that uh, those who haven't heard it have a chance to hear? Uh, yeah, I'm not famous for long story short, so I'll try to keep it short. Um, but Mark, when you said that I had a, a former boss. What he specifically said was that Jane Pauley had the best mental health in the business. Huh. And this was uh, a no other category would, it, would he have said the best anything in the business. But at that time, I, being a Midwesterner, humbly agreed. <laughs> I had a, a reputation for being normal. And uh, normal was an adjective that uh, would be used in, in uh, uh, profiles of me. And I've got the clips to show for it until... I was 50 years old, and I had a, a, a medical encounter uh, that uh, revealed and unmasked an unrecognized genetic uh, vulnerability to a mood disorder. So I was not uh, bipolar when I was 49, but when I was 50, boom, I was and I am. But as a journalist, I learned everything I knew about mental health uh, pretty much in the uh, mid to late 90s. The, uh, President uh, Bush, you remember, declared the decade of the brain. I did not have known family history. Family secrets can sometimes be the same. But uh, uh, so everything I knew about about uh, bipolar, I pretty much learned as a journalist and recognized that uh, with my reputation and at the age of 50, stood little to lose and had a big opportunity when I got better and I knew eventually I would, uh, that I would tell a story and that it had some potential uh, to have, have some impact. I didn't, you know, exaggerate uh, the potential impact, but uh, it, it, it has been a, a very important advocacy role. And I, and I think one of the reasons that I was invited to, in, to share my name uh, was because the first Jane Pauley uh, Community Health Clinics would have the behavioral health component and uh, that perhaps knowing my uh, story would invite people to uh, take advantage of those services. I I've since learned that uh, most people who take advantage of the services that Mark and his team offers don't know who Jane Pauley is or was. <laughs> they're, just, they're just glad that those, the clinics are there for their use when they need them. Well, thank you for throwing that pebble into the pond because it's washed across the shore of so many people all across uh, the country. And, you know, I love the fact that you, <laughs> you were saying, hey, I cut one ribbon and then all of a sudden there are 13. Uh, and, uh, you know, they grow, they, they proliferate. Our, our health center, uh, we're celebrating our 50th anniversary this upcoming year, and we, we know that story. You know, I'm struck, though, that even if, and Mark probably knows this as well, but Jane, you know, you go down the street from the health center and people don't really understand the value that community health centers provide across the country. And Nationwide, as, as you may know, uh, health centers care for 30 million people, yet they're the least known health system in the country. And we are so appreciative that you've lent your name. Any, any thoughts about how, how this good work, that pebble that gets thrown into the pond, could help spread the message? Well, that's why, one of the reasons I, I go back and cut ribbons, uh, though I don't have any role to play in the provision of services. I'm not a healthcare professional yeah. or an 
even a, a professional advocate, but I absolutely know that if cutting a ribbon at the new center in Osei uh, Greenfield, which happened to be my father's hometown, if that um, is an opportunity to discuss community health clinics, then uh, by all means, you know, roll camera. But it also shows proliferation of clinics in, in central Indiana and especially the east side of Indianapolis where I grew up. It tells you about the need because access to health care in our country is a barrier to health care. And if people can't get to the hospital, uh, get to the ER, where, uh, as we know, are overused uh, services around the country, then uh, then that is a barrier to, to their getting health care. Opening a clinic, you know, in their community means that they they actually have a- access to top quality uh, doctors, nurses, oral and, and behavioral uh, care. So it really, Mark, has revealed how necessary and uh, those services and how missing, apparently, that they uh, previously were. People need them. You know, Jane, you've, uh, as you've pointed out, you're not a healthcare professional, but you bring such a valuable perspective as a patient, perhaps first, and as a journalist. But we're looking at surveys, a recent one, uh, that showed less than three in five Americans trust the U.S. healthcare system. And that was a significant drop over these last two years. What do you think we in healthcare uh, need to understand about what people need from us? right now? What's what's missing beyond access? Where does this lack of trust come from, do you think? I'm going to say I don't trust that survey. I think it's a little like the, the way people feel about the media. Uh, I, I think the media probably does a lot worse <laughs> than in those polls. And yet people uh, trust their local news teams. I like the people that I watch uh, who tell me what the basketball score was. They trust their own. And I will wager that the people who mistrust uh, the nation's healthcare system very much trust the doctors and nurses uh, at their doctor's office or their uh, community clinic or their ER um, that that on a local one-to-one basis. I like mine. I just don't trust those other ones. Uh, That's my read. You know, that's such a such a great observation. I think we've heard it that, you know, I, I hate Congress, but I like my congressman or a woman who's exactly. there. I, I think there is there is a problem, though. And I think over the last couple of years, there's been a, sort of a general distrust of public health in some ways, it, not, not completely and across the board. But it does have people, I guess, questioning, should I get the vaccine and, and the other things? It, any thought about how how we try to find the seam of cooperation amongst disparate views. It's so important when we're facing a pandemic to figure out how we talk not at each other, but to each other, right? Yeah, um, I kind of think it's personality driven. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, as long as, as there are, are very strong and effective personalities uh, who, you know, have a, a, an agenda that is otherwise I think that the status quo you describe is going to stay. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think um, the, the wind uh, can, uh, can shift. I've, I've never kind of had that thought that I've just articulated before. Uh, so in the long run, I'm very optimistic that uh, 
we, uh, you know, regain uh, the, the, the trust my parents had in Dr. Collins, who was our pediatrician. Uh, uh, you know, so, but I, it can be undone quickly and doing it up is, is, is probably gonna take uh, some time. Well, let me uh, turn, if I can, to Mark Hackett, the CEO and executive leader of the Jane Pauley Community Health Center. Uh, and Mark, I'm, I'm curious, Jane has been very modest about the impact of her name, maybe in its public awareness and recognition uh, back in her hometown. But I wonder from your perspective, what difference has it made uh, to the awareness and acceptance of the services that you are delivering there in your community to have Jane's uh, name connected to this work and organization? Sure, thanks, Margaret. And uh, uh, to Mark, to, to back up your point, you know, I, I hear it every day and I hate hearing this news, but we're always here, we're the best kept secret in town. And we, we don't wanna be the best kept secret in town. You know, uh, people, once they get in our doors, they, they see the services that they're able to offer. And uh, Jane's name just opens up doors for us. Uh, Jane, you'll be tickled with this, but uh, like we have a new employee orientation every two weeks and I had one just this morning. And I give out door prizes, little Starbucks gift cards. And I, I asked them, Jane, do you know who Jane Polly is and where she works now? And uh, it's interesting, some of the responses I get. <laughs> okay, we'll talk later, but I'll bet a lot of them, I'll bet you would say, and they just drew a blank. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, well, there's there's certain executives if they if they don't know who you are, I'll, I'll just pass on them. But uh, maybe I'll, some of some of the younger crowd, yet yeah, I, I just I remind them she's she's still out there. Tune in on CBS on Sunday mornings. But uh, uh, Mark, but, yeah. I just, I'll, just, I'll just say my sister came back for a, a high school reunion, uh, and the directions to the location featured a turn left at the Jane Pauley. And <laughs> the Jane Pauley has become a, a franchise, irrespective of who I am. <laughs> nice, that's nice to hear. But yeah, Margaret, she has she's opened up doors. Jane hasn't done anything uh, out of the ordinary that would uh, put her name in jeopardy or whatnot. I mean, she's a local gal, just really well respected in the community here, and that is really uh, you know looked at as a very positive uh, having her name affiliated with her organization. Oh, that's great. You know, boy, this last two years has had such an enormous impact on everyone, but certainly young people and, you know, so many lost opportunities that have happened in their lives. Jane, thinking back, if you lost your junior and senior year, what that would have meant in high school. And so, Mark, you know, the behavioral health needs uh, have, have risen up and you're, you've, you're seeing a doubling of the number of patients. T tell us a little bit about how you're navigating in these very difficult times. In, in this particular area, young people have been so profoundly impacted. And as you know, this community health center model, uh, we provide primary care, behavioral health care, and dental care to anyone, regardless of their ability to pay. Uh, it's not free clinics, but uh, they do get a, a deep uh, discount on a sliding fee scale. We get federal funding to help even cover those expenses. But we have seen a huge uptick in behavioral health need. I think we employ over 40 behavioral health providers amongst all of our sites. And uh, that's still not enough. Uh, we have challenges to where sometimes we have to close panels so they don't take on new patients just so they can treat the established patients that they have now. Uh, during uh, the pandemic, uh, uh, telehealth was our saving grace. We actually went from practically 0% using telehealth. And telehealth is uh, basically, you know, using over the phone or video uh, for a call and went from 0% to 85% in, in uh, 2020. It was really high. It's gotten that back down to about 30%, uh, but the, it'll never go away now. Patients have gotten used to it. 
And, uh, you know, we, we, like you said, we have seen a huge uptick in behavioral health care needs as people are slowly getting back to uh, a normal life again and coming out and uh, just uh, having some a lot of behavioral health issues. Um, we mentioned before, you know, when a patient comes in for a primary care need, we, we, the percentage is around 70 percent. 70 percent of the patients that come in for a primary care need has a behavioral health mm-hmm. issue as well. Well, Mark, as uh, you know, one of the great deterrents to people accessing health care is worries about finances, worries about insurance, being uninsured. And it looks like you've done a great job, uh, not only in delivering care after you get people registered as patients, but in getting the Hoosiers to sign up for health insurance through the marketplace, which often is the first step to people feeling like they can go for health care. What, what has worked from your point of view? What's been your successful strategy there? Sure. We, we employ at our larger sites something called an HOA. And I don't like HOAs as far as for where you live, but uh, HOA for us is Health Outreach Advocates. They actually sit down with these patients and discover, hey, did you know that you're eligible for this insurance program that's offered through the state? And so they sign people up right on the spot. We don't have to send them away to some other office downtown. We talked about trust earlier. They trust uh, that the services that are offered within their local community health center. And so so the more services we can offer in our doors, uh, the more they're going to take advantage of the opportunities there. Uh, you know, we, and we've seen huge upticks, not only in primary care, but behavioral health care and dental services. We've actually had records the last two years. We've went from uh, a, a record in 2020 of uh, 94,000 visits and about 25,000 patients. Last year, we, we went over 102,000 visits and 26,000 unique patients. So the need is out there and, and we're just scratching the, the surface, sadly. And like Mark had mentioned earlier, this community health center model nationwide is now over 30 million patients that are, are, are being seen at a health center across the country. You know, um, patients have worries and Mark, you probably have some worries and Jane can uh, hold her ears while I'm asking this question. How many nights are you up thinking we better not mess anything up? Jane's name is on the front door. <laughs> yeah, I've had conversations with Jane about that. You know, uh, we've, we've done this with no marketing uh, strategy. And this year we actually brought in a marketing team to help us to even take it a step further. And sadly, when you when you get into marketing like that, you start getting into copyright, legal stuff and things of that nature. So I've had to contact Jane and say, okay, they're wanting the copyright uh, logo or name or whatnot. So we're ironing, ironing that out. But uh, I remind all staff that the new tagline I use today, we've grown so large that today, just today, we're going to have 400 people show up at a Jane Pauley Community Health Center door at one of our sites. So we have 400 chances to change somebody's lives, and we hope we change it in a positive way. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that is uh, spoken with true health center spirit. And I want to acknowledge that uh, our organizations both have been around for a while. We will celebrate our 50th anniversary uh, in May of this year. And I I think uh, that was just a few years before the Poly Center started. But as we hit that 50th mark, uh, we're really looking at what's on the horizon. And today, you know, 1,300 organizations, almost 30 million patients. But where do you see this work of primary care, really high quality primary care that is accessible to people in their communities? Where's it going from your perspective? Well, as Jane would probably attest, uh, you know, people's told me to slow down, but, uh, you know, uh, we keep expanding because we know that the need is out there. And so, 
Uh, I have a hard time saying no if uh, one of our hospital partners comes up and says, hey, I see how it's working there on the east side of Indianapolis. We want that to, to work in our communities. And so we're always open to that. But uh, as we all know what's going on right now, we call it the great resignation. There's a lot of uh, mm -hmm. nurses and other folks that are just getting out of healthcare. The, the burnout rate is so high. We try to do best we can to uh, honor our current uh, employees and, and let them know how important they are, not only to us and our organization, but for the community and the patients that we serve. And so if there's anything that keeps me up at night is thinking about uh, people actually leaving the healthcare field and having to replace them. So because the, the, uh, the, the crop of uh, um, experienced uh, healthcare providers is growing slimmer and slimmer. Uh, let me just get one final question in for Jane before we go. The media have an important role in educating the audience, and we so enjoy watching you every week on CBS Sunday morning. In your award-winning career, what changes have you seen in how mental health stories are covered and presented? It, I still see the, the momentum uh, even now. Um, I, uh, as the host of Sunday morning, you know, the show may be uh, built and changed according to events, uh, so that I oftentimes uh, see the show at the same time viewers do. And one recent Sunday morning, uh, you know, watching the show, realized that there were three separate stories, profiles of, uh, of, uh, that, that featured uh, some aspect of, of emotional or mental health, uh, you know, whether it was a celebrity or an ordinary person. The context in each of them uh, were quite different but three, and I wondered, when did this happen? Then I recently appeared as a moderator on a panel with uh, uh, three people from the business community and uh, two CEOs of big, successful uh, uh, high-tech startups. These were, in particular, two men in their uh, 30s, 40s, mm -hmm. um, who were, were being open about uh, their issues. The changes are happening so rapidly now yes. uh, that, um, uh, uh, well, it, and I'm just on the sidelines watching it happen. We want to thank you, Jane and Mark, for your time. Congratulations on the great work that you each are doing and that you are doing together. And thank you to our audience for joining us. You can learn more about conversations on healthcare and sign up for our email updates at www.chcradio.com. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, we, we really appreciate both of you. Mark, congratulations on all your work. Jane, thanks so much for the support you've given in India, Indianapolis, but also the hope you've given to all of us across the country that there are strong advocates like you who will uh, help us speak truth to, to power and uh, in, encourage more people to uh, take note of the work that we're doing. So thanks, both of you. So and thank you. Be part of the movement. Appreciate Great. it. Thanks, thanks for having Take us. Care. At Conversations on Healthcare, we want our audience to be truly in the know when it comes to the facts about healthcare reform and policy. Lori Robertson is an award-winning journalist and managing editor of factcheck.org, a nonpartisan, nonprofit consumer advocate for voters that aim to reduce the level of deception in U.S. politics. Lori, what have you got for us this week? Myocarditis, or inflammation of the heart muscle, is most often caused by a viral infection. 
Research shows that infection with SARS-CoV-2, the coronavirus that causes COVID-19, increases the risk of myocarditis across age groups. But myocarditis has also been identified as a rare side effect of the mRNA COVID-19 vaccines. Most cases of vaccine-associated myocarditis have been observed in adolescents and young males ages 12 to 24 following a second dose. According to a Centers for Disease Control and Prevention study, post-vaccine myocarditis is most frequent in males 16 to 17 years old, with about 106 cases per million doses in the U.S. That study and others have found that compared with classic viral myocarditis, post-vaccine myocarditis appears to resolve faster and have better clinical outcomes, although investigations into potential long-term effects are ongoing. Symptoms such as chest pain, shortness of breath, palpitations, or fatigue usually appear within a week of vaccination and resolve within a few days. Case studies show that most of them have recovered with rest and ibuprofen. No one in the U.S. is known to have died from vaccine-associated myocarditis, according to the CDC, as of January 13th. In contrast, as of late February, there have been nearly 5,800 COVID-19 deaths among people ages 18 to 29. However, the rare risk of myocarditis continues to be misleadingly used to argue that COVID-19 vaccines are dangerous and that young males and children are better off without them. The CDC concluded as recently as February 4th that the benefits of both mRNA COVID-19 vaccines far outweigh the risk of myocarditis, even in younger males. A benefit-risk analysis estimated that for every million males between the ages of 18 and 39 who were vaccinated with the second dose, about 1,800 and 1,900 hospitalizations would be avoided with the Moderna and Pfizer-BioNTech vaccines, respectively. And that's my fact check for this week. I'm Lori Robertson, managing editor of factcheck.org. Factcheck.org is committed to factual accuracy from the country's major political players and is a project of the Annenberg Public Policy Center at the University of Pennsylvania. If you have a fact that you'd like checked, email us at chcradio.com. We'll have factcheck.org's Lori Robertson check it out for you here on Conversations on Healthcare. Each week, Conversations highlights a bright idea about how to make wellness a part of our communities and everyday lives. People living in sub-Saharan Africa have tougher odds at overcoming diseases. And the problem is not just the lack of access to healthcare providers, but once someone is diagnosed with an illness, access to vital life-saving medicine is out of reach for many who are sick. Africa has some of the highest drug prices in the world, simply because it's a free pricing market. So you can take a single medicine and two pharmacies next to each other will sell that same drug at widely different prices. Gregory Roxon is the founder of M Pharma, a nonprofit organization seeking to address inequities in drug prices in Africa and the supply chain that often puts these life-saving drugs out of reach. M Pharma decided to tackle the problem by redirecting the supply chain that forces small independent pharmacies and clinics to source their own drugs. 
M Health offers these entities a chance to outsource their procurement for pharmaceuticals. We realized that if we could begin to bring together all these independent pharmacies and remove the pressure that they have to face in sourcing their own drugs, we can begin to address the issue of medicine availability and affordability. They help improve the drug procurement supply chain by collecting data on actual drug sales, which allows healthcare entities to avoid over or understocking, and it reduces their vulnerability to fraud and corruption. Not only are we taking ownership of the supply chain, we're also providing the financing to purchase the inventory. And we offer them a simple value proposition. Pay only when you dispense the drug. Beyond having the products available, we actively help them manage their inventory. Roxon says another important benefit, more affordable drug supplies, help clinicians better manage patient outcomes. M Pharma was a 2019 recipient of the Skoll Foundation's Entrepreneurship Award. M Pharma, a nonprofit entity that utilizes reliable data on drug usage, eliminates fraud and waste in the drug supply chains, makes life-saving medications more readily available to some of the world's most vulnerable people, improves outcomes, and saves money. Now that's a bright idea. You've been listening to Conversations on Healthcare. I'm Mark Maselli. And I'm Margaret Flinter. Peace and health. Conversations on Healthcare is recorded at WESU at Wesleyan University, streaming live at chcradio.com, iTunes, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have comments, please email us at chcradio at chc1.com or find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love hearing from you. The show is brought to you by the Community Health Center.